Good morning. Uh, we are going to be in Matthew 14 this morning, verses 22 through 33. I did not get my text to Bethany in time, so that's why it is not in your bulletins. Uh, but if you can flip in your Bibles or on your phones to Matthew 14, 22 through 23, that's where we're going to be. Uh, and while you're flipping, I just want to say, uh, if this is your first time with us this morning, or fifth time, hundredth time, just want to thank you for being here. I, I realize, especially in the winter, it is a, a sacrifice to get up, get the kids uh, to church on time, and, and you know, especially if this is maybe your first time to a church. Uh, church can oftentimes feel intimidating, and so we're just really glad you're here with us, worshiping God. Without further ado, um, this is our our text this morning, Matthew 14. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And, he, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning, and... Um, we want to confess that we do not believe your word to be your word oftentimes. We um, do not know of its power. And Lord, I pray that this morning, whoever we might be, that we would sit before you, that we would be opened and exposed, and that your word would have its way with us, that your word would form us, that your word would, would change us. We desperately desire this. We desperately desire to be like you, King Jesus. We desperately desire for our world, for Ann Arbor to look like it is in heaven. And so be here this morning. Speak through a very broken, ordinary man like myself, that you would be with your people to give them ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, my son recently turned three. I guess this was like in July, so now he's three and a half. Um, and, you know, we've just now entered this phase where uh, he wants to go to bed with the door open. Um, you know, all of a sudden, when the door closes, the lights go off. Like, the bookshelves would turn into, like, you know, unrecognizable black objects. Um, or, like, the dresser across from his bed, you know, would become, like, a gnarly tooth monster twice his size. Um, because in the darkness of his room, what he sees fills him with fear. There's ever a point in the middle of the night where, where Catherine and I accidentally shut his door, like he's going to scream bloody murder. <laughs> and especially a, a few weeks ago, we went through this phase where like this happened a lot. 
uh, inevitably one of us would, you know, go check on him, talk with him, pray for him, uh, and then some that, sometimes even do like a monster check in the closet. Um, he would calm down. But what can be so frustrating for us is that like five minutes later, his, his fear comes back in. But this time, right, it's not fear of what he sees. We've already done the monster check, right? Clearly no monsters. But now it's, it's fear of what he can no longer see. Mommy or daddy is no longer in the room with him. I don't imagine most of you have to fight the fear of, of monsters as you climb into bed at night. But I do suspect you're, you're like my son Peter. You're like me and, and you're like the disciples in our text this morning. They are filled with fear because of what they can see and the circumstances of their lives. But they're also filled with fear of what they fail to see right there in front of them. These 11 verses are, are littered with fear, which is actually surprising if, if you kind of really knew the context of where we are in Matthew. I, I realize these standalone sermons are always tough because we're just kind of parachuting right into the middle of the text. But verse 22 begins with the word immediately, right? Which, which should kind of hearken us back to the, to the previous nine verses where Jesus is recorded to feed 5,000 people with nothing but two fish and five loaves. Matthew records just two verses earlier in verse, in verse 20. He says, They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And so much like you know, the previous pericope, the previous nine verses of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus miraculously provides an abundance of, of food, the disciples in verse 22 tonight have just been fed from the supernatural provision of the Son of Man. So you'd think, right, with that in mind, why would there be such fear in our text this morning? And, and especially given, like, this wasn't a random miracle, right? This wasn't um, something random that Jesus was doing. John 6 records the connection between feeding the 5,000 and Jesus' divine statement that he is the bread of life. He is the prophet like Moses, you could say, uh, of Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 predicted that because Moses uh, feeds his people in the wilderness with manna from heaven, um, God is going to bring a servant like Moses once again. And so that's why when Jesus follows up this miracle by walking on water, it's kind of a follow-up statement that says Jesus is like Moses, yes, But in this miracle, he shows he's actually more than Moses. He's better than Moses. He's he's deity. He's he's God in the flesh. Walking on water was was an undeniable divine demonstration of of Job 9 and what Job 9.8 specifically speaks about. Listen to this. Job 9.8 says, He, referring to God, He alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. Jesus very clearly, as he does with every miraculous display of power in the scriptures, which, by the way, this is why we reject uh, reject kind of modern findings of, you know, new gospels of Jesus, because if you read them, Jesus is like at the age of five, you know, kind of turning like mud, mud pies into birds, and there's no point to the miracles that he's doing in these modern Gospels. Um, 
But, but the Gospels that we have, that are given for us, that God has provided, that are true, every time you see Jesus do a miracle in the Scriptures, He's revealing a point. He's showing some sort of display for you, for the disciples, for me, of, of who He is, of what His identity is as the Son of Man. And so this morning, we're going to look at this kind of somewhat famous passage where Jesus walks on water to meet a a boat full of terrified disciples, only to have the bold and brash Peter ask to step out and walk on the water toward Jesus. And this is, I think, the third sermon I I preached this fall in our RUF series, which I entitled The Life of Peter. And and something that was really cool as we kind of marched through Peter's life was um, you begin to see Peter's personality come out. Peter, kind of the bold and brash disciple who's not afraid to speak his mind with Jesus, which I I think is why we're all kind of enthralled with Peter, right? Which is why we're kind of attracted to Peter specifically. And if you know anything about Peter, what he says in this text this morning uh, is kind of typical Peter. And many of you might be wondering, like, well, of course Peter would say that. Of course Peter would, you know, see Jesus coming and ask him to, to walk on water himself. And this is where I want to step back and ask the question, even if you know anything about Jesus or about Peter at all, is I want to ask the question, well, why is Peter like this? Why is Peter constantly so bold and brash with Jesus? Why does he feel that freedom to kind of speak his mind with Jesus? And you might be te- you know, tempted to say something like, well, Robert, that's just his, like, maybe his Myers-Briggs type or whatever. That's just his personality. Just enjoy Peter for Peter. Don't think too much about it. And you know what? Like, yes, right? Yes. Peter's got a unique personality. He's special. But I also want to put out there that, like, I think there's something. I think there's something in Peter that feels space with Jesus to be so bold and brash. And so in order to investigate the inner life of Peter and simultaneously the inner life of you know, the 21st century person, we have to first look at the situation leading to Peter's boldness as well as Jesus' ensuing patience with Peter. And so those are my two points this morning, which is uh, Peter's boldness and Jesus' patience. In her memoir, Bossy Pants, uh, Tina Fey writes, She writes, quote, My ability to turn good news into anxiety is rivaled only by my ability to turn anxiety into chin acne. Um, So if your first reaction to hearing a quote like that is, well, Robert, I don't get chin acne. You're not preaching to college students. Then you've missed Tina Fey's remarkable comment upon the human condition. Uh, it's, It's this, like, innate quality we have to turn good news about life, relationships, school, whatever, Right? Like into a reason to, to get anxious. You got a job performance bonus last year? That's awesome. Now, what if I don't have what it takes to, to do the same this year? Or you finally got pregnant? That's amazing. Like, how do I be a mom? Um, I'm a huge sports fan. It was like, Michigan made the college football playoff. This is great. Now they're, are they going to win? And we saw how that turned out. Uh, right, we have this ability to turn good news into into anxiety. 
Does any of that kind of sound familiar to you? It's a talent that actually connects you with the disciples in verses 22 through 27. Right? Remember, they've just tasted with their own mouths some of the best news that could have ever been received. Manna from heaven, the bread of life. A prophet like Moses has been raised up in their midst. This is what they've been waiting for. And so you can understand why having experienced such good news, the disciples would have no reason to leave. Like, why would they want to get in the boat and, like, leave Jesus? On top of that, during the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew highlights that, that the day is almost over. It's almost nighttime. Like, I mention all this detail because, like, to the disciples, they would have been absolutely shocked. They would have been absolutely shocked in verse 22 when Jesus made them get into boats and go before him to the other side. One of the alternative ways to actually translate made in Greek is forced. Like, Jesus is literally forcing the disciples into the boat to go away at nighttime across the Sea of Galilee. Right? I want you to kind of think through, like, the absurdity of this statement for a second. Like, no sleep? Nah, you'll be good. Like, no light to guide the way? Not nah, like, you're going to get there. Why get them to leave now? Jesus, what are you doing? And no doubt, verse 23 highlights that Jesus, in his humanity, needed to get away. He needed to get away and pray. The crowds were literally pressing in on him all day. Right? Like, he needed to... To just get away for a second, to breathe. And so maybe that's understandable. Okay, Jesus. But why are you just going to throw the disciples onto the sea like that? It seems careless. It seems anxiety-inducing. And, and part of me wants to hear like how that conversation went. Jesus coming to them and saying, Hey, I need you to go over you know, to the other side. The disciples are going, Now? Why now? <laughs> Jesus coming back and saying, well, just trust me, you're, you're going to be good. Just, just do it. And the disciples going, hey, but it's dark and we're tired. Can you at least like, give us a reason? This seems silly. And Jesus just saying, trust me, you'll be fine. And so as a, as a disciple in this moment, you quickly turn the good news of, of like, the feeding of the 5,000 into anxiety and a whole host of maybe other questions for Jesus about why he was doing this, who he was. And it literally doesn't matter if he had done something miraculous a few hours ago. Especially when we get to verses 24 and 25. As a disciple, you're a long way from land at this point. The waves are crashing in on you. So It's what the text says is the fourth watch of the night, or which is around 3 a.m., so you're physically exhausted from rowing all night. And on some level, right, like it's no surprise the disciples saw Jesus walking on water in verse 26. And the text says, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they all cried out in fear. Right, like it's no different like than watching a suspenseful movie and someone comes down stairs for a second to grab something, right? Like you're freaked out. Of course the disciples are terrified. You would be too. 
And that, that's when Jesus drops a bomb on them that you can't really appreciate as much in the English. He says to them, Take heart, ego in me. Do not be afraid. Take heart, I am who I am. Literally the same words out of God's mouth in Exodus 3.14 when Moses asked God for his name. God answers, Ego in me. Or I am who I am. So as if like walking on water wasn't as much <laughs> of a nod to his divinity, maybe for a second like you have to assume the disciples forgot Job 9 or something, right? Jesus verbally assuages their fear by identifying himself as the very God of Moses. He is I am. He is Yahweh. And so considering all that, verse 28 is where I kind of want to camp out for a while. It says, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I think this question has, has kind of reverberated throughout history when people have studied this text. After a statement like the one Jesus just made, which is unique, which is why this text is so famous, he's walking on water, it's this divine statement. After a statement like that, and after recognizing the sound of his friend's voice, why does Peter respond the way he does in verse 28? Why does Peter need Jesus to command him to come out onto the water? You would think, man, this is Jesus. I know Jesus. Wow, he's God. I don't know. It's confusing to me. Here's what John Calvin suggests. He suggests that Peter needs further proof that the man before him truly was Jesus. Somehow hearing his voice wasn't enough. He needed Jesus to call him above the wind and the waves, conquering the anxiety of the moment. And by doing that, he would 100% know and trust this Jesus calling to him. Maybe this is you this morning. You're a Christian, but you still need to like, be convinced that Jesus is actually worth following. He's actually worth your life. He's worth your money. He's worth your time. You need him to like give you a sign or do something to alleviate all the anxiety that's kind of demanded of you in this season. I love Jesus, but it's just it's so hard to follow him being a parent of a young kid. Or I love Jesus, but it's just so hard to follow him living in Ann Arbor, being a student at the University of Michigan. And so if Jesus allows you to maybe like control a storm, so to speak, so, like, you're able to walk on top of the winds and the waves. You're able to walk on top of all those kind of maybe anxiety-inducing things going on in your season, in this season of life for you. If you're able to control the storm, then, then you might be convinced that Christianity actually has, like, some real power. And God truly does love you. But here's the thing, right? As well-intended as Peter might be or as you might be, Jesus has something better in store for Peter, and he has something better in store for you. This leads me to my second point, which is Jesus' patience. And so regardless of of Peter's motivation to to walk out onto the water in the middle of a dark windstorm, the response of, of Jesus is exactly what needs to kind of be highlighted here. I think too much is is kind of made of Peter. Um But it's the response of Jesus in verse 29 that needs to be highlighted. Jesus says, come. 
So not what I say to my kids when they're about to do something stupid. Right? Hey, hey, like, please, please stop. Don't do that. No, 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 no. No. Jesus gives Peter what he wants. He invites him to do something he knows he's going to fail at. Some of you might hear that and think, well, that's the problem, though. If Jesus really did love Peter, why would he let him fail? Instead of come, shouldn't he have said no? Don't do that. And so I think two things are are worth saying in response to this question. One is that uh, Peter actually doesn't fail at first, right? The end of verse 29 says, So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Like, he succeeds. Victory. But secondly, and more importantly, is, is Jesus is the master discipler who knows exactly what Peter needs in order to come alive. And it just so happens what Peter needs, Peter needs the space to fail. Because let's not forget that Jesus in his divinity already knows that Peter's not going to be able to walk on the water all the way to him. He knows his friend. He knows that he's going to get really scared. The wind and the waves would eventually win out and Peter would lose sight of Jesus and forget Jesus' power. And so by giving Peter the space to fail, Jesus gives Peter something better than any miracle. Jesus gives Peter something better than the ability to like control the storm or control the anxiety and stress of Peter's life. Listen to what Michael Card, the author of The Emotional Life of Simon Peter, has to say about this instance. He says, quote, There's a lesson here that is almost never heard in American churches. Indeed, there are some congregations that would call it heresy. The lesson is that Peter needed to sink in order to take the next step of faith with Jesus. Because walking on water does not ultimately increase our faith, only sinking does. Those who ask for miracles and receive them soon forget, but those who suffer for Christ's sake never forget. They have their wounds to remind them. End quote. You know what's even more interesting? Is there are two instances of this story in the four Gospels. The other one's in the Gospel of Mark. And do you know the one little detail that Mark leaves out in his Gospel account that Matthew decides to include? Mark leaves out the fact that, that Peter actually walked on water. And if you're going to take the historical uh, account that Mark um, is, is kind of Peter's gospel, that Mark is recording uh, the gospel according to Peter, you could say, um, you have to imagine Peter sitting there with Mark and he's saying, no, 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 like, don't include the fact that I walked on water. I don't want that in there. Why? Um, I think when I, I was first kind of comparing, contrasting the two accounts, I immediately thought, oh, well, that's so humble. That's so uh, humble of Peter that he would do that. That's so humble because, right, he didn't want his readers to fixate, like we so often do, on the fact that he walked. You might think it's prideful, too, right? Like, Peter doesn't want an account where he fails before Jesus. But I think it's humble of, of Peter, I think, I think Peter wants 
the attention to be on Jesus. And the reason why I say this is because I think Peter is a realist. I think Peter is you and me. I think the waves and the wind are real. When we look out at the world, we will always have reasons to doubt. You could be a Christian for a thousand years. On this side of heaven, you're always going to have a reason to doubt. Cancer, poverty, war, it's all real. Yet, Jesus continually calls Peter, as he does to you and to me, to somehow look beyond all those things to a new reality where your present reality isn't actually what is was ultimately true. He calls, he calls you to look beyond your present experience to a reality that is saturated in justice and kindness. A reality that is void of pretension and hurry, where we are free to forsake the ideal of omnicompetence and yet still pursue excellence. A reality that admires rest alongside of diligence, where need and being needy is normal and limits are intuitive and not a burden. A reality where life is not a stage for the loudest voices or a gladiator pit for vindication, and we, where we don't utilize each other as mirrors for our own egos and sculpted bodies. A reality where we are seen when hidden, and where we deconstruct only to build back something tangible, lasting, and abundant. I want to thank my friends with RUF at UVA for helping me think about a different reality and what a different reality in Ann Arbor, Michigan might look like. Put very simply, like Jesus is gracious enough with Peter. He is gentle enough with Peter to give him an experience of the kingdom of God and that the fact that it has already come. And we know from, from Jesus that, that his kingdom, this kingdom, it's, it's a paradoxical kingdom. The way up is down. And the freedom to fail is actually the freedom to flourish and grow. I think the reason why so many of us run away from the church is because maybe you've been gaslighted. You hear from Christians all about this grace of Jesus and how much God loves you. But as soon as you mess up, it's the Christians who are are kind of the quickest to tell you about it. Shouldn't have done that, man. What were you thinking? Stop it. And actually what I feel like is more so the case is that maybe no one actually explicitly tells you that. It's just kind of like a feeling you have. It's this exhausting posture that communicates just how much we don't tolerate failure here. Because somehow to be a Christian, you know, means you have it all together all the time, right? And can I just say, like, that is the complete and utter opposite that could, of, of what is true. That could, that could be no further from the picture we have before our eyes this morning. Jesus has space for you. He has space for you to fail. He has space for your questions and doubts. He has space for your really weird thoughts. He has space. And at Christ Church, we, we have space for you. We don't care who you are this morning, where you come from, what you believe. We have space for you. Because Jesus knows that when you fail, it's not if you fail, but when you fail, you might grow to be like Peter to quickly cry out, Lord, save me. 
It's only those who fail that need the grace of Jesus Christ. So if you don't like failure, you're not going to like much of Jesus. Let me end with, a, with a, a last thought from Michael Card, who I quoted earlier. He says this. He says, The world that Peter and you and I are being called to exit has a million confusing faces. Our fragile health, hunger, our fallen situation, the aching loneliness of the world. The world Jesus calls us into has but one focus. Him. When Peter looks only at the face of Jesus, he begins to rise toward that new world, the world of the kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we want nothing more than to see you. We want to see your face. And Lord, we confess that it is so confusing. We look out on our own lives and our experience is not ultimately what we want to be true. It's not ultimately what you've told us is true. That there is a God in heaven and that he loves sinners. That he loves sinners so much that he sent his son at the right time to die for sinners, to be with sinners, and to provide space for us to sin and to fail because he is so confident that his blood is sufficient, that his blood makes the foulest clean, that his blood makes us white as snow. And so, Lord, would you help us to believe this morning, whether that be for the first time or for the millionth time, we need to believe that you are, in fact, enough for us. And so help us as your people get above this present reality of the world we live in, a COVID-filled, politically stricken world. Would we get above the clouds to see you as you are, to behold Jesus and to long for the kingdom to come in fullness and to get excited about the kingdom that has already come. Help us to play our part, to pick up our cross and to follow you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.